Genesis chapter 2, and we'll be beginning at verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And so I wonder if uh, you would uh, join with me in prayer as we commit ourselves to God uh, before hearing from his word. Uh, Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we want to thank and praise you for uh, giving us your word and your life-giving spirit. Father, we pray now that as we consider this uh, uh, great and uh, profound passage from Scripture, 
that you would be um, opening our minds to your truth and that you would be opening our hearts that we would accept and believe and trust uh, in your word. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. For dust you are, and to dust you'll return. Uh, It's a uh, dramatic and I think a, a humbling statement, isn't it? Uh, because it's, it's a statement about uh, who we are and the future that we all share. Humbling because uh, it seems to me that as humans uh, we want to fight the idea. We want to fight the idea that we are from dust and to dust uh, we will return. Why do we want to fight that? Well, uh, if our life only consists of uh, flesh and bone and blood uh, made up from the chemicals that we find in the ground, then we have to start asking some big questions. Uh, Some of the bigger questions about life, some of the bigger questions about ourselves. What is our life? What is our purpose? Does it even have a purpose? if in the end the grim reality is that we simply return to dust and that's it. And so faced with this grim reality, we seek to inject meaning into our lives. Uh, We inject meaning through relationships. We inject meaning through our experiences. We inject meaning through our comforts and our achievements and yet life, we discover, uh, is, a, is a strange mix, a mixture of, uh, of joys and of sadnesses, a mixture of good and of bad, a mixture of satisfaction and futility. Some people just accept that as being our lot. But the stark reality of being just dust or to drive us to consider the bigger questions. Are we just like all the other animals, only more sophisticated than them, able to launch spaceships to explore the stars, but in the end, are we just like those other creatures which fill our world, resulting only in just dust? Or are we more in our value and in our purpose? And yet as we open the Bible, we discover that the the concept of being dust actually originates there. It comes from the Bible. At the very beginning where God, we are told, formed a man from the dust of the ground. And so what does this mean? And what hope? Does it give? Now, these opening chapters of Genesis are extraordinary, aren't they? Um, In the way that they address the profound issues of life uh, with a simplicity that uh, you don't have to be a philosopher to understand, uh, the profound issues expressed with the simplicity that ordinary people, it's accessible to people like you and to people like me. We're following the sweeping account of creation 
that uh, we saw last week in Genesis chapter 1, in chapter 2, it now zeroes in on us, on mankind and on our place in the world. And it starts with God creating, creating from dust. Now, we Australians, uh, we know uh, what dust is like, don't we? We know what it's like to, 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 for, for a barren, dusty desert to transform from dust to life after the rain falls and the water flows. Which if you open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 2, particularly verse 5, uh, what we see here is that very same picture, that same picture of dust turning to life in two ways. The earth, we are told, had no vegetation. There were no shrubs, there were no plants, there were no trees, and the reason for that was there was no rain. There was no water. But more than that, it was God's purpose for there to be a man to cultivate the ground. And so God created vegetation. God caused water to come up from the earth so that the dust of the earth sprung to life, vegetation. And then, if you have a look at verse 7, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a, a living being. Now, what is this saying? Some people say that we are just animated dust. That the, uh, the combination of the, the mixing of some chemicals plus the passing of a very, very, very long period of time plus pure chance has resulted in life, has resulted in us. But Genesis says that it is God, it is God who has breathed life into the nostrils of man, that we are his creation, designed and given life for a purpose which is far greater than that of the animals. And we see this expressed in the setting in the setting of a garden, uh, which God planted in a place he called Eden. Have a look at that in verse 8. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, and in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Uh, in fact, uh, whenever Eden is mentioned in other parts of the Old Testament, uh, it, is, uh, it depicts a, a fertile oasis. And we can imagine the significance and the meaning for that, particularly for Middle Eastern people, reading it for the first time. Uh, in, there is this fertile oasis which is symbolic. 
It is a symbol of God's generous provision and it is a symbol of God's presence. Where it is a place where God himself dwells in fellowship with man, which we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 3, but which is depicted here by the presence of these two very special trees. For in the very centre, at the very heart of the garden, are the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree which brings life. How good is that? I mean, is, that, is it something you crave? Life. True life. Life as God intended it to be. Life in all of its fullness, with meaning and with purpose. Even eternal life. Like in Eden, where God is present and Adam can freely take and eat the fruit from the tree of life. But the same cannot be said for the other tree. Come with me down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, what is this uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? In popular culture, usually in advertising, the, uh, the forbidden fruit is, depi- is depicted as being a, um, an apple. Uh, and it, it hints at uh, something naughty. It hints at at sex, uh, as if uh, God is somehow uh, forbidding, forbidding uh, as if God is somehow opposed to sex, which he himself created for our good. No, it's far deeper than that. For in the Bible, to know good and evil means to be the one who determines what is good and evil who determines what is right and what is wrong. It's when we think, I know what is best. I know what is right and what is wrong. I will decide. I will be the one who decides what is good for me rather than listening to and obeying God. And in that sense, we we place ourselves in the very centre of Eden, don't we? We place ourselves in the very centre of life in that position which ought rightly to be held by God. It's the very nature of sin. For if Adam were to eat from the tree, what would he be saying? The very action in itself would be an act of defiance against God's right to be the ruler, God's right to be, to be God, God's right to rule his life. God says, do not eat from this tree, and so I say, I'm going to eat from it anyway. Who now is determining what, what is right and what is wrong? It's not God, it's me. 
And that's what sin is. I live my life my way. I determine my own destiny regardless of what God says. And where does it lead to? Well, eating from the two trees results in two different outcomes. One leads to life and the other results in death. Death. Returning to dust, but not just returning to dust, but being expelled from the Garden of Eden and barred from entering and barred from accessing the tree of life with its blessings and its fullness. And so in the mix of the, uh, the joys and the difficulties of life, the satisfaction and the futility of life, the question which we need to ask is not just what is man, but also where is man? For as we'll see next week, we now live outside of Eden, but we are not outside of hope. For just as the Bible begins in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, with the tree of life, it also ends with the tree of life. In Revelation chapter 22, with a different picture of Eden, a picture not of, not of a garden, but rather of a city, the heavenly city, the city of Jerusalem, through which flows the river of the waters of life, on each side of which is the tree of life, where the central position in Revelation 22 is occupied by the throne of God and by his lamb, his sacrificial lamb, Jesus who died for our sin and rose again so that we can again once more eat from the tree of life. And that's where the gospel leads us. That's where the Bible uh, ends. It begins with the tree of life. It ends with the tree of life. And it's for this reason that we don't, we don't actually need to find the, uh, the physical location of the Garden of Eden, which, by the way, is actually tempting, a tempting thing to try to do because in verses 10 through to 14, uh, we are provided with geographical details. Um, have a look at verse 10 uh, where the author of Genesis tells us that a, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden from where it was separated into four headwaters. And then it names... Uh, uh, the, the, those four headwaters and it names the places where those headwaters flowed through. Two of those headwaters uh, which uh, are rivers which we which still have the very same names today, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. Um, scholars uh, try to work out therefore where the Garden of Eden is and some speculate that it's somewhere just north of the uh, Persian Gulf but in the end, the scholars can't agree on the exact location of where the Garden of Eden was, and I think that that's best. I think it's best to say that the passage is clear enough for us to know that it was a real place, and yet vague enough 
for us not to be able to find it. That's helpful because returning to Eden is not about geography. It's about trusting in Jesus and looking forward to the heavenly Jerusalem uh, which contains the tree of life. Now, um, last week, uh, you would have seen in Genesis chapter 1, with its uh, sweeping account of the creation of the universe, uh, that uh, we kept on hearing that when God saw what he had created, uh, that the refrain was that when God saw what he'd done, he said that it was good. Uh, God did this, he said it was good. God did this, he said it was good. But now that pattern is broken uh, when we take a look at verse 18 of chapter 2 where the Lord God said that something was not good. It was not good for the man to be alone. I will therefore make a helper suitable for him. Why is it not good for Adam to be alone? Well, there's a difference, I guess, between aloneness and loneliness. Some say perhaps loneliness may have been an issue, although in the Garden of Eden he had complete and perfect fellowship with God. But as human beings, we are made in God's image, which means that we are relational beings. But being alone also does not fit God's purpose for Adam uh, in the sense of God's purpose for the whole of mankind. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 27, when God created man, being man as a race, uh, he created them as both male and female, and they had a shared role. Firstly, the role was to multiply and to fill the world, which means procreation. It means children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. And secondly... It was their role, the role of male and female, the role of mankind, as God's representatives to rule over and to care for his creation. And so in the garden, Adam is to work the garden and to care for it. And then in verses 19 through to 20, God, we are told, presents to Adam all of the animals for Adam to give them names, which in the Bible implies when someone actually gives a name, that implies a relational relationship where there's a certain type of authority over that person. But this parade of animals is also about finding a helper for Adam, or rather not finding a helper for Adam. I remember once I met a lady who um, didn't want to talk to me and she told me that she didn't need to have people in her life for she had her dogs and I wondered what hurt uh, she had experienced that had led her to this. But this parade of animals just shows that uh, though animals are living beings for our enjoyment and for our good and for us to care for, that though they are living beings, they are not us. 
What Adam needed was a being like himself, another person, another person, but different to him. And for that we note that God did not um, simply go and create someone else from the dust of the ground. Uh, Instead, in verse 21, he made woman from the flesh and the bone of the man, uh, from his rib, or perhaps more accurately, from his side, from his flesh and from his bone. Take a look at that in verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, or his side, and closed up the place with flesh, and then the Lord God made a woman from the rib or the side he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. Now, can you imagine Adam's delight at this? Uh, He has just had the disappointment of um, seeing this parade of animals, uh, beautiful and handsome and well-built, designed animals, but ultimately he struck out finding a partner amongst them. And now what does he see? Well, woman. And he breaks out into into poetry, into poetic joy, where he says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Created from his bone and from his flesh means that she's of the the same essential nature as he is. But she's not man. She's woman. She's equal. But she's different. So that together they can fulfil God's purpose of ruling and multiplying filling the earth. And in this, of course, we see the very basis of marriage, don't we? And yet outside of Edom, we've made a mess of relationships, we've made a mess of marriage. For we have determined that we will decide what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong, rather than listening to and obeying the word of God. No longer is it one man and one woman together in that one flesh union. That one flesh union, which by its very nature of being male and female, alone fulfills God's purpose for marriage in that one flesh relationship and binds a couple together, not just physically. It is at our peril that we mess with God's design for marriage. And yet it needs to be said that life is not actually about marriage. Uh, We all are single at uh, different times of our lives, Some of us are single throughout our lives. Others are in difficult marriages. Uh, And in in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uh, teaches us that our our human marriages 
actually point to something greater than themselves. They actually point to the ultimate marriage, to a union which is available freely and brings life to all people. And that is the union, that is the relationship between Christ and his church, the relationship between Jesus and us, which truly is life. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Uh, Last week, I buried the human remains, the ashes of my mother after, for various reasons, a very long delay. And to the family gathered, I was able to say, pointing to this box full of her crushed and ground and bones, I was able to say that these remains, they're not actually her. Oh, sure, they are her last <laughs> remains of, in, in, in one sense. But though we return to the dust, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God breathes his life-giving spirit into us so that united with Christ, we turn from dust to life and we eat from the tree of life and we return to Eden forever. Someone um, very thoughtfully reflected uh, afterwards that... um, in terms of my own mother, that in the, in the last decade or so of her life, that she, she clearly was very different, that she had a, a new spirit, she, that she had a new joy, that she had a, a new contentment, that she had something which was life that seemed to be worth living and concluded that perhaps that was because she found Jesus. Now, is that something which you would crave for yourself? Uh, Many of us here have certainly found that though we come from those same chemicals that comprise dust, the dust of the earth, that we're actually more than just the $5 worth of dust, chemicals that uh, we end up being that we are more than just dust, that in our, in our God, that in our creator, that we have dignity, we have purpose, we have eternal certainty. In short, we have life. Forgiven of our sin through the death of Jesus, And through his resurrection, a return to Eden in the heavenly Jerusalem. As the Apostle Paul once put it, that the body which is sown perishable because of the resurrection of Jesus is now raised imperishable. For as Jesus himself once said, I have come that they may have life 
and have it to the full. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this uh, great and sweeping truths that we find in your word. Father, we thank you that uh, you indeed bring purpose and meaning in, in our lives, that we are more than just dust, that you breathe into us your very life. Father, we confess that we have sinned, that we have decided that we want to be the ones who rule our lives, that we've stepped outside of Eden in that sense. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his death, for his resurrection, and we thank you that you've breathed into us your spirit that brings us to life, true life as it's meant to be. Father, we pray for any of us here who are struggling with these issues, thinking about the meaning of our lives and perhaps wanting to find more of what it means to live in you. We pray, Father, that you'd work in our minds and our hearts. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.